Please turn to uh, Micah, chapter 7. Um, we come to the very end uh, of the book of Micah tonight. We've uh, come right through it, and now we come to this wonderful climax at the end. <clears throat> now this uh, weekend is, of course, the Diamond Jubilee weekend. Yet today and tomorrow is also the, uh, the anniversary of another very famous event in British history. For the 3rd and 4th of June 1940 were the last two days of the evacuations from Dunkirk. Of the course the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force uh, and the remaining French army soldiers that had been trapped by the advancing German army as they invaded France in the Second World War. Dunkirk uh, with its famous little ships, some of which uh, I understand uh, went down the Thames today. Uh, of course, the little ships went across the Channel to help rescue the soldiers. Uh, and, of course, it was all very successfully spun uh, by the government to make it look like a victory, when in reality it was a complete and utter defeat. It was so bad that before the evacuations, the British government even considered a conditional surrender. In many ways, at that point in the war, things looked very, very bad. France had been overrun. Germany, Italy and the Soviet Union had formed a powerful alliance in Europe. It looked bleak. It looked like Britain itself may even, indeed be overrun by the advancing German armies and the combined strength of the Axis forces. Yet Dunkirk and the success of the evacuations were in some ways... A major turning point. It was a line that would never be crossed. There was, uh, things were bad and they could not really, from that point, get any worse. And from that point on, although there were other major setbacks, ultimately, over the next years, it all turned around. It was bad, but a great turning point had been reached. And as we come to Micah chapter 7, verse 8, we come to a great turning point. Micah has described in shocking details the decline, the brokenness of Judah and particularly Jerusalem in the previous chapters. <clears throat> He's painted a picture of corruption, of hatred, of injustice, a society that lacked mercy and love. From the top to the bottom, God's people have fallen from their covenant standards. That way they were agreed with God. Micah told them the result. It would be exile, it would be humiliation. Defeat and devastation were on the way. God was going to bring upon his people the very things that he had told them would happen to them if they failed to obey him. He was going to judge them. And bring on them the covenant curses of, uh, that were recorded in Deuteronomy 28. It was bad. Very bad. In fact, it couldn't really get any worse. They were at their lowest point. They were as low as they were going to go. And God was going to intervene. Micah, he understood, of course, that he, he was going to be caught up in it all. He was going to go through it as well. Along with the faithful remnant of God's people... They were going to suffer in this great judgment as well. But then we come to chapter 7, verse 8. And everything changes. 
It's a great turning point. For Micah now goes on to something different. We now come to the great passage of hope in this final section of his book. Micah turns from a, from a gloomy, desperate judgment, judgment that is coming to the wonders of God's salvation. So we see, I think, in this three main things that highlight for us Micah's message. Verses 8 through 13, we see God's vindication and his restoration. Verses 14 and 17, do we see his protection and the victory that he brings? And verses 18 to 20, we see his love and his forgiveness. So firstly, in verse 8, we see a total change of what has went previously. Micah has come out of this gloomiest part of his prophecy, and now his tone changes from defeat to the assured vindication that is about to come. Verse 8 is a warning. It is a warning addressed to the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. Do not gloat over me, my enemy, he declares. Because though things are bad and will still get worse in exile for God's people, yet once again, says Micah, I will rise. Though the people of God go through this period of darkness, yet even in that, God will be their light. Even when they experience that judgment that God is about to implement, he is not going to abandon them. Even in the midst of exile and defeat, God is still their light. In verse 9 here, we have an acknowledgement of past failures to live up to the standards of God. Micah knows that he and his people had failed in their covenant obligations. And so he understood that the judgment they now faced was indeed them bearing the Lord's wrath. But this punishment, it wasn't going to be open-ended. It had a limit. For Micah knows that from this judgment and exile, they will rise again. It will not be out of their own abilities or their own cunning strategy as a people. They will rise when he pleads my case and establishes my right. It is God that Micah and the remnant look to for their salvation. For even out of the trials of judgment, God will act to bring salvation for his people by his own love and grace. He will act to rescue his people and bring them out into the light, says Micah. God will save them. They will see his righteousness. God will act to take a guilty people out of judgment, out of darkness and vindicate them. He will bring justice for them. Though they're uh, through their oppression, they will, they will uh, be established as righteous. Not because of anything they have done, but because God has acted to make it so. And the result of God's actions will mean those who seek to destroy and defeat the people of God will be turned from mockery and scorning to shame and defeat. Verse 10, those who delight in the victory over God's people will, once God vindicates his people, eat the dust of the streets. The enemy here is personified as she. She who said, where is the Lord your God? Who mocked and laughed when God's people went into exile. She will be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. Once the enemy looked on in what looked like total victory. 
But Micah says, when God acts to vindicate his people, he will bring them salvation. And these same enemies who rejoice to see God's people defeated will themselves be defeated. God will act to vindicate his people, to bring them out of darkness and judgment into the light of victory. But it's not only that. It's not only that they will enjoy this vindication over those who mocked. They will also experience renewal. Verse 11. The boundaries and walls of the cities of Israel and Judah had been crumbling in defeat throughout Micah's lifetime. The two nations would ultimately both be taken away in exile. Yet Micah sees a time that through God's actions there will be restoration. A restoration and a renewal. The boundaries will once more increase and extend. The walls that have been broken down will be built up once more. It's a picture of restoration, of renewal for an entire nation. And in a sense, the idea, of course, was was fulfilled when the exiles came back from Babylon under Nehemiah, under Ezra. But in verse 12, we see that it's not just limited to this renewal, but it's, it's not just about Judah and Israel, it's, it's about the Gentiles as well. People will come to you from Assyria and Egypt. The former enemies of God's people will now come into this renewed land and become part of God's people. It seems to point out beyond a mere restoration of a nation to the expansion of the kingdom of God under the Messiah. God would act to establish his kingdom. Not a national kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. Which would not only draw people who were Jewish, but also Gentiles. They would come and they would form one people, one church. Those renewed by God. The boundaries and walls you like, if you like, would, would extend not just to a nation, but to the whole world. Mike, I think, hints at this when he says that people will come from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. It will be a worldwide limit. God will renew his people, his kingdom, and those who were once enemies and strangers will now become part of his kingdom. In Micah's time, the kingdom of God looked ruined. But through God's actions to bring vindication over their enemies and renewal to his people, he will build a kingdom that will extend to the world, to every tribe, every nation under heaven. But, verse 13, for those who don't become part of this renewed kingdom, for those who don't find themselves behind its walls and within its boundaries, They will not know renewal. For them, they will only be God's wrath and the justice that they bear as the result of their deeds. Micah speaks of a time when God will vindicate and renew his people so that they will come through his judgment, come through the great trial and experience his righteousness and be renewed. A time when God will expand the boundaries of his kingdom To the ends of the earth. And of course it would be through Jesus. That God would make this happen. It's in him that God has acted. To vindicate his people on the cross. As the forces of darkness were judged and defeated. Jesus put them to shame. 
It was through the cross that God opened the way for the Gentiles to become part of his kingdom and set the boundaries for his people at the four corners of the earth. God has done this. And his people, as his people, we rejoice in it. We experience it. God has acted to bring us from from the darkness of judgment to the light of life. And he will once again act when Christ returns. And all those who mock and stand opposed to God and his truth will be judged. And God will vindicate his people. But secondly, we see also here God's protection and his victory. Verses 14 uh, to 17. Verse 14 begins a prayer, essentially. That Micah prays on behalf of of God's people, asking God to to shepherd his people and to, to bring them victory over their enemies. It's it's interesting to note that uh, throughout the book of Micah, this image of a shepherd, God being a shepherd, a shepherd of his people, it's used three times in three in the, the three main sections of the book as it, it divides up. Firstly, it, uh, we find it in chapter 2, verse 12. Then in chapter 5, verse 4, and now finally here. The image of God being the shepherd of his people is, of course, one of the most used and, uh, image of the, images of the, new, of the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm 23, of course, we all know. Uh, one of the, the most well-known. The idea behind the image is that of God being a loving shepherd who cares, who protects his sheep. He provides for them everything they require. He leads them to find pastures and safety. And so Micah takes this image once more and prays that God would indeed shepherd your people and your inheritance, Micah says to God. Pointing to the fact again of this covenant bond, this covenant relationship between God and his people. They're not just any people, but his own people, his own inheritance, the people that he has accepted for himself. Because of God's protection on them, as as their shepherd, they live in fertile pasture lands and, and feed in Bashan and Gilead. As in days long ago. It's hard to know exactly what Micah is saying here. But it seems to be that he's pointing towards the fact that as with God as, as, as their people's shepherd. The people then will enjoy the best provision that they can expect. The reference to Bashan uh, and Gilead are areas that were, and as far as I know still are, fertile and beautiful places. The very places that sheep would thrive in. It's a picture of God's provision and protection for his people. God is the great shepherd. He leads and guides and protects the sheep which belong to him. Part of that leading and protecting is leading his people in victory over their enemies. Verse 15 speaks of, again, of of the exodus. When God, through his great miracles of deliverance, brought his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage, he delivered them. So Micah asks that once again, God would act. God would act with great wonders to deliver his people from those who oppress them. God had been their saviour before. And now Micah prays that he would be so again. 
Be so from those who now seek to subject his own people to slavery. There's some debate about whether verses 16 and 17 are in fact uh, part of Micah's prayer or not. I think they are. Um, Micah asks God uh, to shepherd his people with, with a staff. To intervene and deliver them from their enemies. As God defeated the Egyptians when they came out of Egypt, so God will do so again. The nations that stand against God's people will see the way in which God has intervened, which way, the way in which God has acted, and they will be ashamed. They will be ashamed because they are powerless, powerless to do anything about it because God has acted. They will lick the dust like a snake. Of course, being a, that's a picture of humiliation. Bite the dust. Humiliation and utter defeat. God will act. He will act to save. He will act to bring victory for his people once more. And those whom he defeats will turn in fear to the Lord our God and be afraid. And this is not the godly fear of those who obey. It is the terrifying fear that comes from utter defeat. Micah asks God to be their saviour, their shepherd once more. After the judgment comes and the people get what they deserve in exile, and defeat comes, God will act, as he did in the Exodus, and he will save his people. He will once more shepherd the flock. Of course, this all all finds its complete fulfilment in the one who was the good shepherd, who laid down his life for the sheep. It was through Jesus that God finally acted, not only to provide and protect for his people, but to give them victory. It was through Jesus that God defeated the enemies of his people, even the last enemy who is death itself. Jesus triumphed over them through his death for us and by his resurrection. And it's him our great shepherd. That is our great provider. He's the one who prepares a place for us in the new Jerusalem. It's him who brings us into his new kingdom. It's him who provides for us so that each of us can say that the Lord is indeed our shepherd. As God's people, we know and we experience God's protection and his victory. God has intervened. He has brought us salvation by his grace, by his mercy. He has acted to show us his wonders, to deliver us Not from Egypt, but from sin and from death and the slavery that we experience to them. That is indeed the the wonder of it all. How can can God, how can God who is, is holy, how can God who is just, how can God who is powerful and majestic, who sits enthroned amid the cherubim, who, who dwells in unapproachable light? How could he possibly, possibly do this for a sinful, broken people? A people who have not obeyed him, have disobeyed him, deliberately so who have been faithless to him, who have rejected him, who have forgotten him. How could, how could God possibly, after all that, 
they have done still deliver his people? That's really the question that Micah asks then in this this final part of of his book. Where we see the, the, the display and the wonder of, of God's love and forgiveness. Who is a God like you? asks Micah. And there's a little play on words here because Micah, the name Micah, literally means who is like the Lord. It's a question that really only has one answer. There's nobody like Yahweh. There's nobody like God. He is unique. He is supreme. Why is that? Because nobody, nobody has a character. Nobody acts like Yahweh does towards his people. For what does he do? He pardons sin. He forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance, says Micah. Yahweh is forgiving. He's merciful to his remnant. Those who have remained faithful to him, who who know their need of his forgiveness, who look to God to be their savior. To them, Yahweh shows his forgiveness. Even when they have wronged him, ignored him. Even when he has judged them, sending them into exile through a great trial. He is such a loving and compassionate God. Because you do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. That, says Micah, is who you are. There's nobody to whom you can be compared because because you forgive guilty sinners. Although you're rightly angry, you forget your anger and you delight to show mercy to your people. So great is God's mercy and love towards his people that Micah says he will again have compassion on them. He will tread their sins underfoot and he will hurl their iniquities into the depths of the sea. It's a picture of absolute forgiveness. The sin of his people will be totally and completely taken away. He will tread it underfoot. You tread an enemy and subdue him and defeat him so that he won't trouble you anymore. He will hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea like the chariots of Egypt. Which were swept away and sank to the bottom of the Red Sea to be remembered and rise never again. God completely and fully forgives. It's not just a partial forgiveness or a conditional forgiveness. It doesn't have a a best before date. It can't be taken away. It is total and it is absolute. So great is his love that he takes away completely his people's sin. Rightfully Rightfully so, it should be his people that he tramples underfoot. Because they have become his enemies. They have sinned against him. But God is so loving, so, so ready to forgive, so merciful, that he delights to take away the sin of his people, to leave them free from it. That's, that's who he is. That's what he's like. I don't know if you have this uh, saying in Scotland or not, but we have it in Ulster. You, you would say to someone they have a heart, of, a heart of corn or a heart of gold. And what you really mean is they're a really good person. That's just naturally the way they are. It's just who they are. 
So it is with God. He is merciful. He is compassionate. He delights to forgive because that is what he's like. That is who he is. Let me uh, quote the Queen again from her Christmas speech in 2011. She said this, It is in forgiveness that we feel the power of God's love. We experience, we feel the power of God's love for us in the delight and in the way in which he forgives us. We see and know his love when broken sinful people look at a cross and they see the extent, they see the wonder, they see the power of the love of God for his people. How far he was willing to go to forgive them. How far he was willing to go to delight in mercy for them. In verses 20 and follow it, 20, verse 20 finishes the book uh, and it's a reminder that God, uh, because of his faithfulness, will remain true to the covenant commitments towards his people. To that bond he has with them. He had bound himself to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob and days long ago and so he will be faithful to that commitment even to their children. Even when they forget about the obligations they have to love God, God will never stop loving them. He will continue to be their God no matter what the cost. And it was God's faithfulness and commitment to that covenant promise that would ultimately see him send into the world his only son. So that we, you and me, his people, might receive that love and forgiveness through a new covenant. A covenant in Jesus' blood, in his death. A covenant that brought us a free offer of forgiveness and acceptance. So that once again, God will be our God. And we, Abraham's children, through faith in Jesus, will be his people. That is who Yahweh, our God, is. He's the one who vindicates and renews. He protects and brings victory. And he loves and forgives. I don't know why he does all these things for us. After all, who amongst us deserves it? Nobody. I don't understand why or what makes him love me and you. The more I think about it, the more I don't understand it. Yet it's simply who he is. A God of grace and mercy and love and compassion of forgiveness and faithfulness. I can't understand that. I don't know why he does it. I can only sit and wonder and rejoice and give thanks and praise and glory to him. I can only rejoice and worship. When I think about it, the extent that he was willing to go, the mercy that he has showed, the forgiveness that he has offered, I can only rejoice and sit in worship. And I invite you to do the same. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for the cross. A place where love and mercy met, where guilty sinners can be redeemed, where love triumphs over evil, where your grace is extended to those who do not deserve it. Lord, we thank you for these things. We do not understand, Lord, why you love us so, why you were willing to send your Son, why you were willing to come into a world that didn't lie, did not love you. Lord, we thank you for your mercy, for your covenant faithfulness, for the way in which you love us. Help us, Lord, in the weakness that we experience because of our sin, to look to you, to be our saviour, to look to the cross and understand our forgiveness, to look to the future with hope, because you will indeed not only forgive us now, but will indeed vindicate us at the last when you return. Help us, Lord, to trust in you, to rest in you and no other. For who is a God like you? No one is. You are alone supreme. You are alone amazing. You are alone worthy of all our worship and adoration. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of Solace, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.